The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In her 2005 book, Abducted, How People Come to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens, Harvard psychologist Susan A. Clancy theorized that abductees' memories of their extraterrestrial experiences are a combination of sleep paralysis-induced hallucinations and vivid imaginations already inclined to believe in the paranormal. This theory holds a lot of water. Many people who claim they were abducted by aliens say it happened at night and remember seeing bright lights and dark foreboding figures, which are all commonly attributed to sleep paralysis. What then to make of Elizabeth Clarer and her alien lover, Aachen? None of the encounters she described with him happened at night, making sleep paralysis an unlikely candidate. Furthermore, many alleged abduction victims have gaps in their memory from the event but Elizabeth was able to recall every single detail from the time she spent with Aachen. Also, what about the fact that Elizabeth was all too willing to go along with Aachen on their interstellar trysts? She certainly cannot be described as an abductee. By all accounts, Elizabeth Clarer was of sound mind and body, ruling out any mental illnesses such as schizophrenia to explain her recollections of Aachen. In the end, the most logical explanation is that Elizabeth made the whole thing up. But there is something else to consider, something else that defies all conventional logic, that it all happened. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world and discuss how much validity there is to these stories. I'm Bill. And I'm Tim. Last episode, we began the story of Elizabeth Clarer, a South African woman who claimed to have engaged in an interstellar romance with an alien from Alpha Centauri named Aachen. This week, as we conclude Elizabeth's story, we'll also be examining how believable Elizabeth's experience is. Is there any truth to it, or is everything she said about her epic romance with Aachen a complete fabrication? At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Ever since she was a child, Elizabeth Clarer had always been able to rely on Aachen's protection. He had saved her from a fiery meteor and a violent tornado, and had shielded her from the scrutiny of military officers and civilian journalists. But now she was on her own, hiding behind a bush with her son David, as two mysterious astronauts pointed a small, tube-like weapon at Elizabeth's horse, Celine. Although Aachen did closely resemble a human man, there was no mistaking these menacing astronauts for aliens. These intruders were men, and they did not come in peace. But Elizabeth couldn't stand idly by and let them hurt Celine. If her time with Aachen had taught her anything, it was that all life is precious. Celine was more than a horse. She was a beloved, trusted companion, and Elizabeth couldn't bear to see her get hurt. Without a second thought, Elizabeth burst from her hiding place and yelled for the two men to stop. Startled at Elizabeth's sudden appearance, the men lowered their weapons, allowing Celine to run away. The astronauts turned towards her as she marched up to them. Elizabeth was so furious that she was tempted to slap one of them across the face. But Aachen had taught her another valuable lesson. Words were much more powerful than violence. Elizabeth got face to face with the lead astronaut and went on the offensive. She chastised him for pointing his weapon at Celine and told him he and his companion had no right to land their craft there. She said South Africa was a peaceful country and it was no place for their violence. The lead astronaut gazed at Elizabeth with a cold, steely glare. It was clear nobody had ever dared to speak to him this way. Elizabeth feared he might turn his weapon on her. But after a tense moment, the astronaut's eyes softened in a look of recognition. The astronaut, speaking a perfect Oxford English accent, apologized for having to threaten Celine's life, but it was the only way they could be sure to get Elizabeth to speak to them. Elizabeth was taken aback. She knew deep in her heart that these men were only interested in her for one reason, Aachen. The astronaut confirmed her suspicion. Despite his English accent, he and his companion were Russian agents. They had been able to track Aachen's ship with their sophisticated spyware and wanted to speak to him about his incredible technology. They knew they could never catch Aachen themselves and were hoping Elizabeth would summon him so they could discuss his advanced technology. Aachen had told Elizabeth that nations such as Russia and the United States knew about him and wanted his technology for themselves but he refused to share it. Although he trusted Elizabeth with the secrets of his powerful technology, the people of Earth as a whole were too violent to have the knowledge of interstellar travel at their disposal. Elizabeth told the Russian astronaut that she would never summon Aachen, and even if he did come, neither he nor Elizabeth would ever share Aachen's people's secrets with the Russians. In a flash, the Russian grabbed Elizabeth's wrist in a vice-like grip. All traces of friendliness vanished from his eyes. He knew that convincing Elizabeth to get Aachen to speak to them was a long shot, but she still held great value to them. 
There was another path to the incredible knowledge Aachen vigilantly guarded from humanity, his unborn son. As the Russian astronauts prepped their spaceship for departure, they revealed that their real mission was to capture Elizabeth. They were tasked with bringing her back to Moscow, where she would be held in a special exobiology clinic that dealt with life from outer space. Once Elizabeth gave birth, the Russians would raise the child to be a scientist. They were confident that Aachen's son would naturally want to reunite with his father and would have the ingrained knowledge of how to reach the stars. Unfortunately, this part of Elizabeth's story runs into a bit of a historical roadblock. According to Elizabeth, this encounter happened sometime in 1957, but the first manned spaceflight wouldn't occur until April 12, 1961, when the Russian astronaut Yuri Gagarin orbited around the Earth. If the Soviets had achieved spaceflight five years before Gagarin's flight, it's highly unlikely that they wouldn't have publicized it, given the intensity of the space race during the Cold War. That's true. A lot of the story doesn't pass the smell test, but since this was during the early stages of the space race, perhaps the Soviets wouldn't want it to get out that they were pursuing the knowledge of interstellar travel. If they succeeded, sending small craft into Earth's orbit would be small potatoes compared to the ability to travel between solar systems. Good point. But whatever the case may be, at this point, Elizabeth truly believed she was in real danger. There didn't seem to be any way out. Her son David had disappeared, hopefully riding to safety, but her own horse was missing too. Just as all hope seemed lost, Elizabeth's horse groom appeared over the ridge. The Russians bristled at his appearance, but didn't raise their weapons. They couldn't risk upsetting Elizabeth and inducing a miscarriage. Celine was with the groom, and the horse ran up to Elizabeth to comfort her. But the comfort was short-lived. After the brief reunion, the lead astronaut announced it was time to leave. Wait, Elizabeth shouted. They had a long journey ahead of them. They should let the groom prepare them some tea before they left. The Russians agreed. They missed having creature comforts, and it would be nice to have some hot tea before departing. Elizabeth had bought herself a little more time. As she sipped on her tea, her mind raced. She just needed the slightest of distractions. And she got one. A South African fighter jet roared overhead. As the Russians turned toward the noise, Elizabeth leaped onto Celine's saddle and spurred down the mountainside. But the Russians weren't giving up. A powerful beam emitted from a swiveling turret atop the Russian ship. It completely annihilated a boulder sitting on the trail next to Elizabeth. But she knew it was nothing more than a warning shot. The Russians couldn't risk hurting Elizabeth or her child. Elizabeth and the groom continued their flight down the mountain. With the sudden appearance of the South African Air Force jet, Elizabeth hoped the Russians would have to rendezvous with their space station rather than pursue her any further. Once again, Elizabeth's story here bumps up against a historical impossibility. While the first space station was built by the Soviet Union, it wasn't launched until 1971. Something else to consider here is that Elizabeth was only speculating at the possibility that the astronauts had a space station. It's important to note that this story comes from Elizabeth's autobiography, which was released in 1975. It's possible that as she sat and wrote the story, 
it occurred to her that the Russians might have had a space station from where they could track Auken's movements. Considering the presence of a boulder-annihilating laser, it's also possible that she embellished the story for dramatic purposes. But whether the dangers were real or a bit enhanced, Elizabeth didn't want to hang around and wait for the Russians to get back, and rode to the bottom of the mountain as fast as she could. While riding, she found David, who followed her towards home. As she sped down the mountain, a hailstorm broke out, and Elizabeth and David took shelter in the Zulu groom's hut. Safe inside, she knew the Russians wouldn't be able to track her as the vicious storm lasted through the night. When the storm ended the next morning, Elizabeth sensed Aachen calling her. She knew the Russians wouldn't have been able to remain on the mountain during the storm and that it would be safe to rendezvous. With David in tow, Elizabeth returned to the foot of Kathkin Peak. Aachen arrived shortly after. Aachen was impressed with Elizabeth's quick thinking and bravery in facing off against her Russian would-be kidnappers. He apologized for not being able to intervene, but Elizabeth wouldn't hear it. She knew how important it was to keep his technology out of the wrong hands. Elizabeth, Aachen, and David passed several blissful days at the foot of Kathkin Peak. Aachen told Elizabeth it would soon be time for them to depart for his home planet of Meton so she could give birth, but he had a few things to take care of first. He instructed her to head back to her sister, May's farm, and he would come to fetch her in a few days. Coming up, Elizabeth visits the planet Meton and gives birth to her and Aachen's son. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. Elizabeth and David returned to May's farm to wait for Aachen's return. But Elizabeth found herself in a more turbulent situation than she had anticipated. While Elizabeth was gone, May's beloved dog, Cookie, disappeared. She had sent out all her workers and two trained hunters, but there was no sign of poor Cookie. Elizabeth's throat tightened. She believed Cookie had been killed in a ritual sacrifice for his muti, or medicine. According to Zulu tradition, Muti sacrifices are performed in order to use the victim's body parts as medicine. While these sacrifices are not commonly practiced amongst the Zulu people, they are an unfortunate remnant of traditional beliefs. For someone who still believed in the power of a Muti sacrifice, Cookie's value was twofold. As a white-colored animal, a piece of his liver was highly valued. Eating it would give the consumer added sexual prowess and keep evil spirits at bay. Furthermore, Cookie had seen Aachen's ship, and therefore his eyes would be imbued with great power. Potentially, eating his eyes could give someone a small piece of the power Aachen possessed. Elizabeth shared her suspicions with May, and May's thoughts immediately went to her sister's safety. Some of the local Zulus had seen Aachen's ship appear in the skies on occasion. While they hadn't spread word of Aachen to the press, 
it wasn't far-fetched to believe that, just like Elizabeth's Russian captors, some of the Zulus might want a piece of Aachen's power for themselves. If whoever had killed Cookie spread the word that the dog had witnessed Aachen's craft, Elizabeth could be in unimaginable danger. If they were willing to kill Cookie just because he had seen Aachen's ship, who knows what could happen to Elizabeth if people found out she was pregnant with Aachen's child. But Elizabeth wasn't worried. She knew Aachen would come for her before word began to spread too far. And she was right. A few days after returning to the farm, Elizabeth could sense Aachen's presence. May agreed to watch David while Elizabeth was gone, and they shared a tearful yet joyful goodbye. Elizabeth then set off for a nearby hilltop in her trusty MG automobile. It wasn't long until she heard the familiar hum of Aachen's ship, and it appeared in the moonlight skies. Unearthly bluish light emanated from the portholes as Aachen stepped out of the ship. He walked to Elizabeth and gently picked her up in his arms. But Elizabeth stopped him before they re-entered his ship. As silly as it sounded, she didn't want to leave her car sitting there on the hilltop. Aachen laughed and promised they'd take it with them. He was curious about how it worked, since his people were advanced far beyond piston engines. Once the MG was safely stored on the ship, Aachen and Elizabeth took to the skies. Aachen reassured Elizabeth that she would be able to breathe normally on Meton. During her various stays on his ship, Aachen had mixed in air from Meton's atmosphere, which allowed her body to gradually adjust to what the conditions on Aachen's planet would be like. For the first time, Elizabeth experienced how Aachen's ship was able to travel such vast distances. There was no discomfort as the ship adjusted its light and time frequencies in order to reposition itself in the Alpha Centauri system. Elizabeth's heart soared as Meton filled the view screen. She leaned her head on Aachen's chest as the ship descended through the atmosphere and landed on the roof of Aachen's home. Aachen's family welcomed Elizabeth as if she was one of their own. Elizabeth marveled at how happy and healthy they all were. Aachen told her it was because his people had evolved past war and interpersonal conflict. The people of Meton were unburdened by tension or aggressive thoughts, which gave them exceptional health and longevity. In fact, Aachen was over 3,000 years old. They had no need for a monetary system. Everyone shared the beauty and comforts of life with each other. Knowledge was channeled into constructive work rather than conflict. With such a harmonious civilization, Aachen's people were extremely selective about who they admitted into their society. As Aachen had previously explained to Elizabeth, she had been selected because she was a descendant of the original Venusians and retained their race memory that made it so easy for her to integrate into their society. Elizabeth didn't know how this was possible, but could feel that it was true. She bore more resemblance to Aachen's people than she did her own family. Somehow, the blood of Aachen's people had been passed down to her. Although she was of Earth, she was a true Venusian, just like Aachen. Unfortunately, Elizabeth wouldn't be able to stay on Meton forever. Although she was able to survive on Meton, her heartbeat was still attuned to Earth's lower frequencies of time and space. 
Aachen was able to temporarily adjust Elizabeth's heartbeat for four months. It would be long enough for her to give birth to their son and help raise him to young adulthood. With Aachen's technology and Miton's unique properties, his growth would be significantly faster than if he had been on Earth. Although Elizabeth was saddened by the knowledge that she couldn't spend the rest of her life with Aachen and their son, she was buoyed when Aachen told her that after she died, her soul would be transported to Miton and she would be able to rejoin them. Life on Miton was nothing short of paradise. All life existed in harmony with no carnivorous predators to threaten life. Overpopulation was solved by transporting excess animals to other planets where they could thrive. Elizabeth was delighted to see vast herds of snow-white horses galloping across the landscape. They reminded Elizabeth of her trusted horse, Selene, and for good reason. Arabian horses, like Selene, were the descendants of Miton's beautiful equines. The days passed in serene bliss. Elizabeth and Aachen rode the beautiful, tame horses all across Miton's picturesque countryside, taking in all the abundance the planet had to offer. At night, Aachen and his family would show Elizabeth scenes from their people's history that would materialize like a curtain across the comfortable living room. She saw scenes of his people's formation on Venus, which appeared to be very similar to Miton. Elizabeth learned how Aachen's people, the forebearers of humanity, emerged from Venus's vast warm seas and created a great and glorious civilization. This claim contradicts what science has told us about Venus. Although it is very similar to Earth in terms of size, mass, and density, the similarities end there. Venus is the hottest planet in the solar system as its dense, hellish atmosphere traps heat in an extreme greenhouse effect. However, there is also the possibility that Venus was habitable during the first two billion years of its existence. Using models similar to those used to predict climate change on Earth, NASA researchers have concluded that Venus used to have a shallow ocean of liquid water, cooler temperatures, and a thinner Earth-like atmosphere. Incredibly, they first came to this conclusion after the brief foray of NASA's Pioneer probe in the 1980s, long after Elizabeth had made her claims about Venus. With the challenging conditions now on Venus, it's impossible to search for any traces of Aachen's civilization, as the atmosphere has made short work of the probes NASA has sent. If we are to believe that Aachen's people originally came from Venus, it contradicts the scientific consensus around Darwin's theory of evolution, as it would mean that humans are the descendants of Aachen's people and not the product of a long evolution process on Earth. One thing is for sure. Elizabeth believed Aachen with every ounce of her being. He described to her how his people's serene existence allowed them to focus on science and technology for peaceful purposes, and they eventually developed helium-filled airships that allowed them to escape Venus's atmosphere. Beyond the atmosphere, Aachen's people got their first glimpse of the solar system's other planets. Desiring to visit them, they dedicated all their resources to building spaceships. Eventually, they made it to Earth and Mars and settled civilizations there. Unfortunately, a change in the sun's radiation forced them to abandon our solar system 
although they did leave a small contingent of people behind on Earth to foster a new race that would be adapted to the new conditions. These new humans became practically unrecognizable from the original Venusians, although a select few, such as Elizabeth, retained some of their characteristics. As the scene faded away, Elizabeth was overwhelmed with how brave Auken's people had been to overcome the unknown and push beyond the reaches of their home solar system. They thought nothing of themselves. Everything they did was for the benefit of future generations. Aachen's sister, Playa led Elizabeth to her room to rest. The moment Elizabeth lied down, she knew it was time for her to give birth. Time on Meton flowed differently than on Earth, but it felt like her pregnancy had gone by much faster than it had with her other children. Also, unlike her pregnancy experiences while on Earth, there were no painful contractions to endure. Aachen's advanced medicine made it a completely painless and simple experience. Elizabeth marveled at her newborn son's smooth golden skin, and many of Aachen's friends and family members came from far and wide to congratulate the new parents. All agreed that he would grow up to become a great scientist. Their son quickly proved to be unlike any human child. He never fussed or cried and slept for long hours at a time. He grew faster than a human child and quickly adopted the vegetarian diet of Aachen's people. Elizabeth and Aachen took their son with them everywhere they went, and he would take note of everything around him with his large, golden eyes. Aachen took them in an atmospheric craft all around Meton, and they explored its beautiful islands and vast oceans. They visited Aachen's friends, sometimes for days at a time. In the back of her head, Elizabeth knew her time on Meton was ticking down, but she didn't dare dwell on the future. The present was too perfect. Meton was the ideal place to raise a child. There were no drugs or alcohol or violent films or anything to contaminate their son's mind. Aachen's civilization was a utopia in all respects. It was custom for Aachen's people to not name their children right away. The right name had to arrive organically. After a few weeks, Elizabeth proposed the name Ailing. It derived from the old English word for noble, and it started with the letter A, just like Aachen. Aachen loved it. He felt like it was a name that paid homage to both their worlds. Elizabeth and Aachen gathered their loved ones at Aachen's home to celebrate Ailing's naming. Visitors came from stars as far as the constellations of Lyra and Cygnus, which was over 1,500 light years away. The visitors from Cygnus very much desired to have Ailing come visit them, but Elizabeth was worried. Although Aachen's people were capable of traveling incredible distances, it was still very far. Elizabeth was also concerned that there would be a supernova somewhere within the constellation in the near future. In the end, they decided Ailing could go visit Lyra instead, which was only 26 light years away. Although Elizabeth knew he'd be fine, she couldn't help but be concerned for her son. The stress of worrying about Ailing caused Elizabeth's heartbeat to go out of the rhythm of Meton's frequencies. The reality of the situation finally hit her. She would have to return to Earth alone while Aachen and Ailing explored the mysteries of the universe. 
Despite her sadness, Elizabeth wouldn't have wanted her life to have gone any other way. The glory of Aachen and Ailing's love would stay with her forever, and if she was destined to live a shortened life, it was worth it. After recovering her strength for a few days, it was time for Elizabeth to return to Earth. As she climbed aboard Aachen's ship for her voyage home, Elizabeth was surprised that she felt no sadness or remorse. She knew that her return to Earth was but a mere blink of an eye compared to the eternity she'd be able to spend with Aachen and Ailing once her human body passed away. This was an honor only bestowed to the very few outsiders Aachen's people brought into their society. Since Elizabeth was bestowed with Aachen's people's race memory, her spirit would naturally return to Meton after her death. With Aachen's technology, she could be reborn back into her body as it was now with the longevity and health of a true Venusian. This knowledge buoyed Elizabeth's mood and made leaving Meton less heartbreaking than it otherwise might have been. And even though Elizabeth knew her true home was on Meton, she was still happy to see the mist-shrouded hills of Natal, South Africa once again. Aachen landed his ship on the mountain tract where he had come to take Elizabeth to Meton. The mountain air was cleaner than the polluted smog in the city, but it still didn't compare to Meton's pure air quality. Elizabeth choked and coughed as she readjusted to Earth's atmosphere, and Aachen advised her to breathe slowly and not too deeply until she had readapted. Aachen kissed Elizabeth deeply and passionately. He promised to always watch over her and keep her safe. Elizabeth replied that he would forever be in her heart and she would take strength from his love. Aachen wished he could stay with her, but considering how eager many of Earth's nations were to get their hands on his technology, they could never be happy and settled. Elizabeth agreed. Although parting was extremely difficult, her experience with her would-be kidnappers made it clear that she, Aachen, and Ailing would have to wait to be together. Aachen smiled and brought Elizabeth's car from out of the ship's hold. He stood silently as she climbed into the car and turned on the ignition. Elizabeth looked back, but Aachen was gone. His ship was sealed. It pulsed with its beautiful blue light, and then it was gone. Coming up, Elizabeth readjusts to life on Earth, and we examine the credibility of her experiences with Aachen. And now, back to the story. Elizabeth's return to Earth in 1957 was a joyous affair. May had kept Elizabeth's room ready, and there was a fresh pot of tea on the stove when she came home. May had known that Elizabeth was away with Aachen and was keeping an eye on David as well while he was enrolled at a nearby boarding school. But things had changed in the four months that Elizabeth had been away. Shortly after Elizabeth's return, May and her husband both passed away. Unfortunately, Elizabeth wasn't capable of taking care of the family farm, so she and David returned to Johannesburg. But she felt suffocated by the crowded streets and polluted air. Six long years passed until Elizabeth was able to save up enough money and leave the city for long enough to reunite with Aachen. In 1963, once David's school was out of session, they left Johannesburg and returned to the Drakensberg Mountains. As they approached the mountains, Elizabeth was hit with a sudden wave of longing for Aachen. 
As her thoughts dwelled on the blissful moments they had shared on Meton, the clean smell of the distant planet's oceans filled her senses. Elizabeth knew that Aachen was near. Elizabeth pulled the car over, and she and David stopped to observe the sky for a sign of Aachen's ship. By now, David was a teenager, and although he didn't have any real relationship with Aachen, he didn't seem to begrudge his mother for her interstellar relationship. As usual, Aachen's ship appeared in its customary flash of light, framed beautifully against the gathering cumulus clouds. At this moment, Elizabeth took out a box camera and took several photos of Aachen's ship. The photos can still be seen today. They show a small disk standing out starkly from massive clouds in the background and are regarded as some of the most convincing evidence of UFOs existing. Elizabeth stood by the photo's authenticity, and they offer perhaps the most compelling proof of Aachen's existence, more so than some of the fantastical and scientifically dubious details from her story. However, some people have also pointed out that the ship in Elizabeth's photo bears a striking resemblance to a spinnerino toy, which is a spinning plastic plate that can be balanced on a stick. However, nobody has definitively proven that Elizabeth's photo isn't authentic, and it does look very convincing. For anyone curious about the photo, it can be easily located on the internet. But at the time, Elizabeth wasn't thinking about getting proof that Aachen existed, or fodder for UFO debates. She just wanted a memento that she could turn to when her heart ached for her alien lover. As Elizabeth finished snapping her photos, a sudden lightning storm surrounded the car. Operating on instinct, Elizabeth flung herself off the rock she was standing on, flattened herself in the grass, and rolled down the hill. It wasn't a moment too soon. A streak of lightning shattered the rock she had been standing on only moments earlier. Knowing David and the dogs would be safe in the MG, Elizabeth took shelter under an outcrop of rock ledges to wait out the storm. To her surprise, Elizabeth found her thoughts drifting to an ex-British Army major named Aubrey Fielding. Aubrey had visited her in Johannesburg a few weeks prior at the behest of the chief, Elizabeth's former commander who shared her passion for UFOs and extraterrestrials. This visit wasn't an official army investigation. Fielding was retired from the forces and was currently an art dealer in Johannesburg. Although Aachen would always be Elizabeth's true love, she was surprised that her mind was drifting toward the kind and gentle ex-major. Once the storm receded, Elizabeth returned to the MG where David waited for her safe and sound. They continued on to the hostel at the foot of Kathkin Peak, where they had taken shelter after escaping from the Russian astronauts. Elizabeth looked to the sky, anxious for Aachen's ship to reappear. He never kept her waiting for too long. Had he sensed her thoughts for Major Fielding? But there was no reason to fear. Aachen's ship appeared as it always did in its incredible flash of blue light. Aachen quickly put Elizabeth's fears to rest. He understood that the love they shared was unlike any other, but it was selfish to expect Elizabeth to live the rest of her life alone while he and Ailing explored the galaxy together. Aachen also realized he had left Elizabeth on Earth with no sense of purpose. 
How could he expect for her to resume her normal life after the incredible experiences she'd shared with him? For years, Aachen had carefully guarded his people's secrets from humanity, despite the interest in his technology from many governments. Humans were simply too brutish, too obsessed with violence to be trusted with the knowledge of how to travel across the vast distances of space. But not Elizabeth. The entire time they had been together, Elizabeth had to keep her relationship with Aachen secret from the masses, with only a select few knowing about her lover from Meton. But now, Aachen realized that she could use her experiences with him for the betterment of humanity. With Elizabeth's help, maybe humanity could someday be ready to join Aachen's people in the stars. Elizabeth was overjoyed. Ever since she had returned from Meton, she had felt directionless. The thought of spreading Aachen's message of love and peace to other people gave her a sense of renewed vigor. Aachen stayed with Elizabeth for a few days, but couldn't stay long as he had to go observe the star Vega, 25 light years from Earth. His instruments had picked up a change in the star's plasma output, which, according to Aachen, could affect sunspot cycles and radiation patterns. But now, Elizabeth had a job to do as well. Upon her return to Johannesburg, she jumped fully into the UFO scene. She was determined to spread Aachen's message of peace and love as far as she could. Elizabeth was more than willing to give interviews to whoever asked, even if the coverage was less than flattering. Many articles about her had headlines such as, Liz is in love with a harmony from space, or a romance that is out of this world. But unflattering headlines didn't upset Elizabeth one bit. She believed in the adage that all publicity is good publicity, and the more people that her story reached, the better. One person who didn't find her story ridiculous was Major Aubrey Fielding. They were married in 1963, shortly after her return from the Drakensberg Mountains with Aachen's blessing. As for Aubrey, he didn't ever feel threatened by Elizabeth's love for Aachen. Regarding his alien rival, he said, quote, well, my wife has been in love with a spaceman for 20 years. That's all right with me as long as he stays in space where he belongs." End quote. Whether he was a believer or not, Aubrey was extremely supportive of Elizabeth. He helped her establish a flying saucer society called Contact International. And although we don't know how many members it had, they must have been very dedicated. The society held monthly meetings into the 1980s, stopping only when Elizabeth's health was too poor to continue. For the most part, the UFO community wholeheartedly believed Elizabeth. In 1975, she was the guest of honor at the 11th International Congress of UFO Research Groups at Wiesbaden, Germany. After her speech, she received a standing ovation from the 22 attendees. It may not seem like a lot, but these were the top minds in an admittedly small field. Garnering their respect was a sign for the community at large that Elizabeth should be taken seriously. Elizabeth's success within the UFO community encouraged her to compile her experiences with Aachen into a book. Released in 1975 after her speech at the UFO summit, Elizabeth's autobiography, Beyond the Light Barrier, was translated into English in 1981. 
Now able to reach a wider audience, the book sparked a new round of interest in Elizabeth's story. The UFO community hailed it as a work of genius. UFO researcher J.J. Hertek called it a profound, provocative book. Unfortunately for anyone skeptical of Elizabeth's story, there didn't seem to be anyone else who was able to corroborate its truthfulness. Many of the people who had crossed paths with Aachen, such as her sister May, had passed away. Or, as with many of the Zulu farm workers, they were too difficult to locate. As for Elizabeth, she remained adamant that Aachen was real until her death in 1991, when she passed away from breast cancer. But what about us? On a scale of 1 to 10, how believable is Elizabeth Clarer's story? On the surface, it's not believable at all. According to people who knew Elizabeth, she first began to tell stories of Aachen after reading books by George Adamski titled Flying Saucers Have Landed and Inside the Spaceships, which told stories of a friendly alien from Venus named Orthon. Conventional science isn't in Elizabeth's favor either. As we discussed earlier, her description of the advanced technology deployed by her Russian captors doesn't seem likely considering the timeline of human space travel. And her assertion that Aachen's people originated on Venus and are the forebearers of humanity doesn't line up with the scientific consensus on humanity's evolution. Perhaps the biggest indictment on Elizabeth's story comes from her son, David, who she claimed had even met Aachen. For many years, he was silent on the subject, but David finally decided to speak his mind in an epilogue to a new edition of Elizabeth's book in 2007. Although David never confronted Elizabeth about her story, he says he has no recollection of ever meeting Aachen or the thrilling encounter with the Russian astronauts. As for her being gone for four months, David was in boarding school at the time. It's entirely possible he wouldn't have spoken to her for a prolonged period, although one would expect him to be able to remember if his mother had gone to a planet four light years away. David's theory is that Elizabeth's true purpose behind her story about Aachen was to spread the new agey message of peace and love. She may have believed that presenting her ideals through the lens of a fantastical story about an alien lover was the best way to reach a wider audience. However, something to consider when examining Elizabeth's story is that her photos of Aachen's ship have yet to be officially debunked. They are held up by the UFO community as some of the most convincing evidence of alien life. And until someone can prove they're fake, there's always the chance, however small, that Elizabeth really did photograph a UFO. For his part, Aachen doesn't seem all that interested in revealing himself to us to definitively prove his existence. However, others have claimed to see UFOs in the area around the Drakensberg Mountains. While there aren't any concrete explanations for what has caused these sightings, one possibility to consider is that people are seeing a sundog, an atmospheric phenomenon that consists of bright lights on either side of the sun. Sundogs are most commonly caused by ice crystals in the atmosphere refracting light from the sun. Considering the high elevation of the Drakensberg Mountains and the description of Aachen's ship as a bright light appearing in the sky, it's entirely possible that it was actually just a sundog. A common occurrence of sundogs offers an explanation for the history of the Zulu lightning bird myth as well. 
It's easy to imagine how a mysterious yellowy light in the sky could be mistaken for a bird. Large birds are mistaken for UFOs all the time. Why not reverse it? Or perhaps Aachen doesn't think humanity is quite ready to meet him, but is still collecting information on us before fully revealing his presence. Unless he decides to share his technology with us, or the Russians finally get their hands on his ship, we'll probably never know for sure. Ultimately, the only physical proofs of Aachen's existence are Elizabeth's photos of his ship and the ring she said he gave her. Unfortunately, nobody has ever been able to examine the ring to determine its authenticity. In the end, the most convincing argument for Aachen is Elizabeth's unwavering confidence in her story. But for me, it's just not plausible. I give it a 2 out of 10 on the believability scale. I agree. And that too is only because no one's ever disproven the photo. While it's nice to imagine the possibility that humanity could transcend our petty squabbles here on Earth and join Aachen and his people in the stars beyond, it just doesn't seem likely. But perhaps Elizabeth said it best in Beyond the Light Barrier. Quote, the cosmic scale of this book will be lost and misunderstood by many whose intelligence cannot be expanded in this epoch of time to a conscious awareness of our cosmic connections." End quote. Thanks for listening to our story on Elizabeth Clarer and her galactic lover, Aachen. We'll be back next Tuesday. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then... Don't forget to keep your eyes on the sky. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.